Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, what's next for Extinction Rebellion? The environmental protest group sent out a press release at the start of the year headlined, We Quit, which might lead you to think that, well, they were giving up. Not quite, but they are shifting away from the kind of mass public disruption that made their name in the first place, at least temporarily. XR came to prominence after blockading major sites in London during 2018 and 2019, but have arguably now been eclipsed by other direct action groups, such as Just Stop Oil and Insulate Now. So is Extinction Rebellion facing extinction itself. We'll hear from one of the organization's co-founders, Claire Farrell. Before that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. We don't have a millionaire backer or the support of large corporations. We rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, non-partisan journalism, exposing corruption and holding the powerful to account. You'll get details about subscriptions over at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And subscriptions cost from as little as £3 a month. So go on, do yourself a favour, head over to bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Claire Farrell. Claire, welcome. Lovely to speak to you from Extinction Rebellion. And we've spoken before, but for listeners who aren't up on that conversation, just remind us about the origins of XR and your role in it. Yeah, sure. So Extinction Rebellion was founded in 2018. It kind of emerged from a whole kind of melting pot of activists who were working within a decentralised network that was pre-existing called Rising Up, people who were interested in non-violent tactics and direct action across a whole range of issues, social justice issues and environmental issues. And that group included Gail Bradbrook, who some people will have heard of who've been looking at XR over the years, also included Roger Hallam. And I came into that network in 2017, I sort of discovered people working in different areas and started doing civil disobedience with Roger. He was doing campaigns in London and I've got background in fashion and the arts. So at the beginning of XR, myself and a few other people really founded the art department and the creative team that did the sort of look and feel and finalised on the name and the identity and stuff like that. And what was it for you that made campaigning in this area ultimately irresistible? I've been educating on sustainability in fashion for a very long time. I was interested in environmental issues since I was really young. In fact, I'd say really it's the CFC crisis and the ozone crisis that I remember being really sort of affected by as, as a very young person when I was still at school and effectively looking at the science that was being taught to me in school and then being taught, well, you know, we knew CFCs would act as a catalyst and make holes in the sky, which would threaten human life. And yet we've allowed business and industry to pollute the atmosphere with this for another 20 years or so with that knowledge in full view. So for me, it sort of begins there. But then within my sort of lifetime of looking at sustainability issues in the environment and knowing about climate change, the big message would come every now and then saying, we've got 10 years. 10 years later, it says we've got 10 years and 10 years later, say we've got 10 fucking years. And it's like, well, obviously 
that can't be true <laughs> unless the science has changed dramatically and the understanding hasn't changed dramatically. In fact, I think arguably in some ways has become more alarming and worse. So when there was a sort of proposal to turn the majority of our attention to the umbrella of the climate crisis on the understanding that it's going to cause breakdown and collapse, and then you lose any purchase really on many other social issues seemed like a, a no-brainer to me. And people like yourself were willing to risk arrest, willing to go to jail in the cause of preventing climate breakdown. You felt that it was worth disrupting life, certainly in central London. I witnessed one of your protests myself in Oxford Circus and many of your members, very pleasant, mild people in the normal course of events, but people who said enough is enough. If it means that we get a criminal record, if it means that we have to go to jail, the stakes for the planet are so high, it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the majority of people in our movement still do think that that a wholly appropriate position to take. And a lot of us still have outstanding cases from being arrested and, and many, many people, you know, still facing time in prison as a sentence for things that have taken place some time ago. And let's be in no doubt either, the the position that you're coming from in terms of climate breakdown, climate emergency, may once have seemed a fringe position. It is now the mainstream position of the United Nations. The United Nations regularly issues really stark warnings about the future of the planet unless we dramatically reduce the amount of CO2 emissions. The UN Secretary General, Mr Guterres, talks in almost apocalyptic terms unless mm. we change the way that we live. So the message that XR brings and has been bringing now for a number of years is no longer seen, I think, by any sensible or fair-minded commentator as a fringe position. The means mm. of affecting political change, which we'll come on to, may be a different matter. But the notion that we live at a time of climate emergency is now mainstream political thinking. Yeah, and I think there's a big difference between saying there's a climate emergency and acting like there's a climate emergency. And for me, the shift in the rhetoric happened much faster than I expected. You know, we used to say at the beginning, we're going to shift the Overton window on what it's acceptable to say about this thing because people are playing it down. I mean, people might not know that the term climate change itself was devised by people to take literally take the heat out of the notion of global warming because the idea of the planet getting too hot to live on is frightening as fuck so let's call it climate change so that it sounds more like well the climate does change doesn't it it does sort of vary and we have had different stages in the planet's history before the other thing i think that was important for us to try and land and this has been much harder i have to say was the sort of notion that this is a crime against humanity or the notion that this is going to cause something like a genocide and people who are technically minded will know that the climate crisis as it causes mass death doesn't meet the standard criteria for the specifics of the term genocide because it's not specific enough who you're directing into a mass death scenario. It's very problematic that we don't really seem to have 
the right language or the right lexicon to be able to properly describe what kind of a crime is taking place. But in 2018, so when myself and a few others went on hunger strike at the Labour Party, we were calling on the party to pull a three-line whip to vote against the expansion of Heathrow Airport to say, if you do not obstruct the expansion of an airport now, what you are advocating is a policy which is a crime against humanity. And that is how it will be seen in the public record. And at that time, we would speak to people and particularly journalists or people on the radio and they'd be like, you want a crime against humanity to build a runway, you know, like people didn't understand it and they didn't realise how much danger they were in or how near it was. And that's all moved much more quickly. But what hasn't moved quickly enough, and, and I think this is sort of what Antonio Guterres almost sort of, he's come very close to this in his rhetoric when he said the real criminals are governments who are pursuing more fossil fuels. The real criminals are the corporations who want to make this worse for profit. He's saying those things, but people have not really picked up on it. And the popular discourse in the media hasn't picked up on the fact that what we're witnessing is governments enacting crimes against humanity. And for me, that's a really fundamental piece of the rhetoric that people need to understand. That's not just a thing to say to, to try and make it sound more dramatic. Like that is the truth. That is the honest truth. And when we look at movements of the past, which we've taken like great inspiration from, there's this wonderful photo of somebody holding a sign at a climate protest that says, have you ever wondered what you would have done during the civil rights movement? And then underneath it just says, you're doing it now. And I think people haven't really come to that point of understanding with this. They know it's a crisis, but they really haven't worked out what to do about it or how to behave as if it's a crisis or how to demand that those in power actually act as if the house really is on fire. And just to unpack that idea a little bit, we're talking about industrialised nations. Of course, Britain was the first industrialised nation pumping CO2 into the atmosphere, causing climate change, which, of course, will impact upon all of us. But it's the wealthier, more industrialised nations who perhaps will be better equipped to deal with the consequences of it and the people who will be the worst victims of what will be a, a global catastrophe will be those least able to deal with it. The poorest nations on earth have done the least to create the problem. Yeah, precisely. And I think the hearts of many, many people who are looking out to the impacts on the rest of the world are just are just shattered and broken looking at what's been going on. You know, it was everyone, I guess, has lived through the 40 degree day in the UK and seen the wildfires here and Hopefully they haven't completely forgotten them, but there are millions of people around the world. You know, you look at the state of what's happened to the poor people of Pakistan, the ravages of the famine that happened in Madagascar recently. The impacts are everywhere. And if you pay attention, it's inescapable to realise that the earth systems are already in a state of very rapid change. Everybody's saying it, even the most learned kind of experts in the fields. It's worse than we thought. It's faster than we thought. That's always the message. 
but it's also the message that should be going to the public about the impacts because the impacts are much worse than we thought they were going to be I think at this point like if you ask someone 10 years ago would they think there'd be this much extreme weather do they think there'd be this many places on fire and this much flooding and I don't think that they would and there's an issue now with like the damage that's done coming to terms with the position that we stand in needing to mitigate and adapt at the same time and needing to get people to get with the program that you know this has been done to people in parts of the world that are feeling the worst impacts first literally i would say on purpose because the international negotiations have decided to take this course and not to improve it and right now they're arguing about loss and damage which compared to a conversation about real reparations is also like a technocratic kind of economic approach to saying, well, we fucked you over, we'll just throw some money at you. And then, by the way, they're not even throwing the money, like they're not even giving the money. So we're witnessing a kind of unprecedented state of global injustice, the likes of which I don't think has ever been imagined in many ways. And I really think we need to work really hard with the public to try and help everybody to get their heads around it, basically. When you started taking part in these mass public disruptions from 2018 onwards, I'm guessing part of the function of that was to raise awareness about these issues. And as you've acknowledged, at least to an extent now, the discussion has moved on, I would suggest, in the mainstream media. There are still sometimes climate change sceptics given platforms in mainstream media. But I think the idea that there is this thing called climate change, even this thing called a climate emergency, is now common currency in the media. So is that why you've come to this point where you've decided that mass disruption is no longer the tactic that you wish to pursue, at least for the time being, that in a sense that job has been done? Well, I think, you know, we've done a lot of things to raise the alarm. And I and I think it's really important for people to understand that the alarm needs to be raised every day because the news cycle is really fucking short. The government is really ignorant. People forget about the 40 degree day this summer very quickly. People sort of forget about how it's actually quite hot outside in lots of parts of Europe, including London right now. And it's January the 3rd. People do need to be reminded again and again and again and again because the institutions of our society have not done their duty to help people to understand or to realise what's taking place. But when you have a public like we have in the UK, which polls majority highly concerned about climate change, which polls, you know, majority want to see quite radical political action taken, you have to look around at the climate movement and say, why the fuck is it so small? Like, hello, everyone, if you're really worried about it, come with us, come out with us. And the media has stoked this debate about which tactics are right. Is it this? Is it that? And frankly, you know, constantly throwing the light onto activists and individuals and behaviours, rather than what we're giving them the opportunity to do, which is to go, hey, guys, we've broken the weather. And like, everybody needs to pull together because we need massive political change. And we need big unity. And we need to come together to do the best to tackle the future that we've now created, which is one which is breaking down and which will never be as stable as it was when I was growing up or, you know, if you go back even further before pre-350 parts per million. But like, 
because that conversation has not been okay everyone pulled together okay what do we do okay how do we build social cohesion and it's all been about oh should they sit in the road should they hold a sign should they throw some paint it's like well okay let's just say to everyone if you all want to pat us on the head and say yeah we agree with what you say but we don't like what you do we're going to go out and throw a gauntlet basically to the British public to the third sector to all the well-wishing people online that go oh I don't like what you do but I know it's a crisis and say we're just going to do a big job on mobilizing for the next few months we won't get too much in anyone's way we'll do a few actions but they won't be causing a a massive disruption and if we say that will you now come and come and hang out with us because we really need to build bigger numbers and let's just see how it goes it's like it's a few months but everyone's been saying that we need a bigger climate movement and that more people need to join the dots between all their struggles Antonio Guterres, who you mentioned, has been saying, you know, it needs to be too big to ignore. So we're saying, well, imagine if the Iraq war march or something of that kind of a scale, which obviously we don't probably think we're going to get a million people. But imagine we go for like a fraction of that and those people come and they come back again the next day and they come back again the next day or they just sit there through the night. But they basically say, you know, we're not going to just do this as a one day thing. We're going to do it and we're going to stay And then say, well, we're going to stay here until we get a better answer because you guys aren't giving us the answer that we need, which is to guarantee that we take some serious action. And for me, having done that Iraq war march as a young person and then everyone going home and then the war happens anyway, and then people call it out, people lose their jobs over calling it out. It was a completely unjust war. And you would have thought that millions of people saying no could have had an impact, but it didn't. And it was very disheartening for people then to think, well, that part of our democracy doesn't function. And I think the position we're in today, the British government are so arrogant, they're so ignorant, refusing to engage with striking workers, refusing to meet with activists and the climate movement. They are going around saying, we believe in the right to protest, but they don't because they've just criminalised it. And at the same time, what they're not doing is engaging with people that do protest. And that is how a mature democracy works. People go out and they protest. They get enough people behind it. I mean, thousands of people have been arrested in our campaign. My lawyers have told me it's it's the biggest campaign of civil disobedience since the suffrage movement that this country has seen. And yet there's been no interest in talking about the suggestions that are coming from the citizens that are so concerned that they're willing to sacrifice their liberty for it. They're not meeting Insulate Britain. They're not meeting Just Stop Oil. They're not meeting with XR. They're not meeting with the youth movements. And that's a dereliction of duty on their part. They're saying that they're part of a democracy, but it is totally undemocratic to witness an outpouring of concern like that from good citizens, from teachers and vicars and rabbis and doctors you know, just ordinary people. And to decry that as a bunch of self-interested people that you shouldn't speak to. There's a massive democratic deficit and it's inside Westminster. And so it's really important for us over the next few months to talk about our proposed solution, which is to have more citizens participation in politics. And if we really are going to exit the fossil fuel era, which is complicated and difficult and needs to be done in a fair and a just way, then what we're saying is involve 
citizens very seriously in the process by which you do that. Those decisions should not be taken by people that went to Eton and who are completely detached from reality and don't understand ordinary people's lives. Yeah, it's an interesting dilemma, I think, in that I've presented radio phone-in shows for many a long year. And of course, if there are people who are disrupting ordinary citizens who want to go about their jobs, who want to go to the hospital or whatever, there is, a, I think, a legitimate question to be asked about whether that's a, a reasonable tactic. But at the same time, we know that some media organisations represent, should we say, corporate interests that they represent, in some cases, support for the fossil fuel lobby and the disruptions that you and other groups have engaged in have, in a sense, given them something else to talk about rather than the climate emergency itself. And it seems to me that that's the point that you're suggesting you've now reached, whereby you're trying to say, well, look, we're not going to give you an excuse to talk about the disruption that we may be causing. Let's talk about the real issue at the heart of this. So if we stop disrupting you, you have no excuse to not talk about this much more important issue, that of climate breakdown. And even more so to actually join us. You know, you'll get these commentators that say things like, well, we all know there's a climate emergency and it's really important. I care about climate change. And it's like, no, you fucking don't. Loads of them say that. Listening to Dan Wooten in an interview go, look, I'm an environmentalist, you know. And it's like, are you? <laughs> I, I mean, it's you know, it's wild what they do. And then they go, but I don't think you should stop people going about their blah, blah, blah business. And it's like, but they know that nothing's happening on this issue of any mm. note. They know mm. that we're headed for collapse. Do you know, in Crown Court cases where you have certain legal defences, you can bring in a set of agreed facts. The Crown agrees the facts, the defence agrees the facts, and then they get given to the jury. On some of our agreed facts from some of our Crown Court cases, they outline some of the science, and it basically admits that we're on course for civilizational collapse. That is a matter of agreed fact, and you can hear that read out in a Crown Court before they attempt to prosecute somebody who got in someone's way for like 55 minutes. I mean, it's just staggering. It is staggering. The consequences are beyond the imagination. And we're still talking about, oh, but did you get some paint on that? Where you really sat in the road in someone's way for like 45 minutes. It's a very strange time to be alive, I think, because there's this kind of inability for everybody to kind of admit where we are. And it's like the message has landed partly. Yeah, we're like talking about it. Everyone's going, look, it's really happening. It's really hot. The weather's really fucked up. And, you know, everyone's getting flooded and blah, blah, blah. But people are not really emotionally engaging with the reality of what it actually totally means. And so in some ways, direct action and disruptive action really helps because it makes people feel emotion and it can burst through things. So that's why it's so valuable. I also think that with such a massive majority of the public saying that they are desperately worried and like when they're polled, they tick the box terrified. I mean, massive proportions of the British public would say, are you worried, very worried or terrified? They go, I'm fucking terrified, actually. But if you're really terrified about something and you don't know what to do about it, 
then that is an extremely painful place to be. And we know there's loads of mental health impacts with the climate crisis that are very, very bad, and particularly on young people. And so I guess in terms of saying we're like extending the invite and we're trying to make it easier for people to join and so they don't have to do a climb down and go, oh, actually, okay, I will go and stand in a road and glue myself to something. It's like, no, you can just come and do a normal thing, which is called protest. So we're going to show up and we'll show up and show up and show up and show up. And you're planning a big protest outside the Houses of Parliament then on the 21st of April for, what, 100,000 people? What would be success for you? Well, it's hard to say because, you know, we often do things that are quite dispersed over lots of time. And so with asking people to come for multiple days, I understand that there's going to be an invite for people to sort of either come at the beginning or come at the middle or come like at the end of a week or something like that so that people can choose a place where they can come for several days so we're people are trying to like design the way that people enter this so that it's as easy for them to join as possible so for me it feels more likely that if we had a hundred thousand people they would be spread across several days rather than all there on one day because that's a hell of a lot of people but yeah i think successful where i'm standing anyway in, in westminster would be for there to be a really broad base we know that the people who are very exercised about nature and conservation right now are saying that the government has declared war on nature. We also know that some of the conservation NGOs are running their own independent citizens' assembly on nature and what to do about it. So we also agree on a political kind of concept with them, which I think is super interesting, not just the fact that we all want nature to thrive, but the fact that we agree on political mechanism that could be worth an awful lot in terms of improving our democracy. Then if we have loads of people who we can sort of build bridges with the trade unions, we understand there needs to be a transition that people need to work out how to make this kind of move worker-led and citizen-led. So we've got a lot to agree on with the trade unions movement, the energy justice campaigners, the people who are refusing to pay their energy bills, who are looking at like modes of non-cooperation to seek justice in the face of the oil corporations and the energy corporations. Like we've got tons in common with like all of these issues that are all bubbling up in the UK. And so to me, success would look like all of those things sitting in the same place at the same time and showing people in real time how they're connected and that actually this way of doing politics isn't working right now for the majority of British people. Everybody is aggrieved. Lots of us agree on lots of stuff, certainly enough to come together. <laughs> and we need to popularise mechanisms that include the participation of ordinary citizens in politics. So for me, that's what success would look like more than just focus on numbers. But is the idea then to kind of create a, a rolling protest, a non-disruptive protest in Westminster, whereby people might arrive day after day or they might opt in for a day or two, depending on their availability, so that they can show that they want change, that they want measures that will combat climate change, that will reduce the impact of CO2 emissions, but do it in a way that allows them to protest without being arrested, but to demonstrate that they care passionately about this. Yeah, I guess so. And framing it as protest, I also think, is a really interesting thing to do right now. Because obviously, if you have 
a very large number of people in Westminster and there aren't enough green spaces and pavements and things for people to go on, then where is everyone going to go? If they want to stand outside the seat of power and there's like enough people to fill Parliament Square, then I guess that's what they will do and they'll stand there. But in any democracy, you would think that if you were choosing between heating and eating, you could go and stand outside your parliament and hold a little sign and say, this isn't okay. In any democracy that's headed for guaranteed social collapse, you would think that you could go and stand outside parliament and say, guys, you're doing a shit job. It's remarkable if you just reframe this as like a very simple and ordinary human right, which is to gather outside the seat of power and say, you're not doing a good enough job, folks. We want something better to do that in the new context with the new legislation and with the government behaving in the way that it is. Is there a risk that people will face arrest under the recent changes in the law? Well, I think that's something that we're going to have to do some work on, like Mm. what's the right guidance to give people? Because in theory, you can still protest. But in reality, there's questions about whether you can as well. And I think there are many, many people talking at the moment about the ways in which these bills may go through, the ones that haven't gone through yet, the ways in which they could be used the ways in which they might play out in the judiciary. It's very unclear, really, where the citizen of Britain stands today in terms of protest and the legislation. So, yeah, there will have to be some really careful consideration of what the potential impacts are and making sure that we all share as much information as possible so that everybody knows where they stand. But for me, the starting point is you would think if you lived in a democracy that you could do this, wouldn't you? And when we explore the details... If it turns out that the police will potentially move in and say, you can't do this here, then everybody will have to be given the message. Well, if the police tell you to move on and they're going to arrest you if you don't move, then you either do what they say or get arrested. And here's the potential consequences given the new laws. So there's going to have to be an ongoing conversation about this. But that's yet another thing that I think that the majority of the British public haven't probably realised yet is how many of their liberties have just been taken away over the last few years, whilst They were in crisis because of the pandemic and because of problems with our economy and problems with our energy and everything. I don't think people have have noticed how much has been taken away from them, but it's an awful lot. As you've mentioned earlier, XR is ultimately a a decentralised network. This is your vision, as it were, but there may be Extinction Rebellion groups around the country who decide to do things differently. There are groups I've mentioned like Just Stop Oil and Insulate Now, who've certainly attracted headlines with their direct actions. What would you say to those groups if they're thinking of planning more disruptive actions over the coming months? Would you urge them to not do that and to come and join you on this protest instead? Uh, No, not at all. Part of the reason for thinking about this from XR UK's perspective has been because there are so many other groups now doing kind of the radical end of nonviolent direct action and disruptive action. I think what people have said to themselves with this, what's happening in the broader landscape? What could we do to maximise our usefulness as the type of organisation that we are, as the group with this sort of local group network and spectrum of people what could we do to most help in from this moment, from this context? And I think people just thought, give it a few months to see if we can help to convene the broader base that will bring boots on the ground, 
but in a slightly different context. So you might be back disrupting the roads in future. It is a, a, a temporary week quit for a, a different kind of tactic to, to kind of see what happens next and just remove some of the obstacles that people might feel to getting involved in a demonstration to show their support for for the kind of politics that you want. Yeah, exactly. And I think massively to push the message of the third demand, which has been the least talked about and the least well understood part of Extinction Rebellion, in my view, is this call for citizen-led democratic solutions that means that by using a different mode of governance, you can come to much more realistic and sensible and compassionate policy decisions. And I don't think that that message has landed firmly enough, but it is, to my mind, an immediate way of bringing people together, of beating polarisation, of getting representation. You know, it's no silver bullet in terms of the only thing that you can do in democracy, but I think it is a fucking good option at a time like now. And I certainly think people are ready for a change in this country because the system's obviously not working. So I hope that we can build a broad base around the fact that we're a pro-democracy movement. Claire Farrell, thank you very much indeed. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. Don't forget as well, we have additional content now available over at bylinesupplement.com, including sometimes advanced editions of this podcast. So check it out, bylinesupplement.com. For now, though, that's all from this edition of the Byline Times podcast. Thanks very much indeed for listening. We'll see you again very soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.